As I mentioned last week, we're going to take a little break from our series in the book of Genesis, probably till toward the end of January. We're going to do a little mini-series uh, now, in this month of December. Last week we looked at Christ the prophet. Tonight we're going to look at Christ the priest. And next Sunday night, Lord willing, we're going to look at Christ the king. And these are three aspects of his uh, role as mediator between God and men. Uh, tonight we're looking at the subject of Christ as priest, as we continue our study of his threefold office of mediator. As the one mediator between God and man, Jesus is the consummate prophet, the consummate priest, and the consummate king. After looking at Christ the prophet last Sunday night, we're going to look at the subject of Christ as priest tonight. And the big idea I want to get across to you this evening is that Christ as priest, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. That's taken from Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, which is one verse that we just read. The author of the biblical book of Hebrews draws out a lengthy argument about the superiority of Christ over the Old Testament Levitical priesthood in chapters 5 through 8 of Hebrews, much of which we read just a minute ago. The argument in Hebrews, in this section of Hebrews, is that because Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, therefore, He is superior to Old Testament Levitical priests, and therefore, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. That might not make a lot of sense to you at first, so let's survey some touchstones of the argument and see exactly how Christ is like Melchizedek, and exactly how that proves Christ's superiority over Old Testament priests. And I'm confident that by the end of the message this evening, the argument in Hebrews will make much more sense, and we'll be more motivated to draw near to God through Christ, our priest. So let's begin by looking at the Old Testament background of Melchizedek. Turn with me back all the way to Genesis chapter 14. Let's read together verses 17 to 24. After his return, that's Abraham, after Abraham's, well, he's still Abram at this stage, actually. After Abram's return from the defeat of Kedor Leomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. <clears throat> but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anor, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. That's it. That's all, that's all that Melchizedek, that's all the airtime that Melchizedek gets in the book of Genesis. That's it. 
we see him come up again in Psalm 110, which I read to you earlier in the service. But as far as Melchizedek in the book of Genesis, he's really not a major player. That's it. Just those couple verses. But the author of Hebrews spends three or four chapters unpacking this idea that Christ is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We might tend to shy away from sections like Hebrews 5 to 8 because we have no idea what it's talking about and it makes us a little nervous and uneasy. But once we see what it means that Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, it's actually a wonderful, glorious truth. So let's try to, let's try to work towards that a little bit. Who is this cryptic, mysterious figure in the Old Testament? Melchizedek. Is he the pre-incarnate Christ? Some have said yes, uh, but I think the answer is no. For one thing, he was a, he was a king. He was the king of Salem. He's not um, in Genesis chapter 14. There's no indication in this text that he's anything other than a king and a priest in a nearby city. So when you see other appearances of the angel of the Lord or things like this that receive divine worship and speak in the first person about God's instructions to people and so on and so forth, there are indicators in the text that this is a manifestation of God himself. But we don't have any indicator in that text. He's just simply introduced to us as a king of a city called Salem, which is actually probably the, the uh, um, city that later becomes Jerusalem. Uh, and then secondly, another reason why he's not the pre-incarnate Christ is, uh, as Wilhelmus Abraco says, to be like someone is not the same as being that person. And he who is according to someone's order is someone else. Right? So if I said, for example, I am a, I am a pastor after the order of John Rittersgaard. And you say, that doesn't really make sense. You can't really make that comparison. It doesn't really make any sense. Right? So to be like someone is not the same as being that person. And uh, who, he who is according to someone's order is someone else. And so even the language of Hebrews would steer us away from thinking about Melchizedek in the Old Testament as sort of a manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, the way that an, the angel of the Lord might be considered at times. But one thing that we see in this section in Genesis 14, and this is what's picked up by the author of Hebrews, is that Melchizedek transcends the Mosaic Covenant. More than that, he transcends the Abrahamic Covenant. This is what the author of Hebrews picks up on. Melchizedek illustrates that God has a bigger plan than simply dealing with human sin through Levitical priests. That's what we see in Genesis 14, and that's what's drawn out at length in Hebrews 5 through 8. If we go back to uh, Hebrews, the author of that book points out that Melchizedek is without uh, genealogy, without father or mother. 
And this, is, this seems to be just a figure of speech because, again, we don't think that Melchizedek is a divine being, that he's naturally descended from someone. But the idea is uh, that he represents one who has no uh, uh, beginning of life, uh, but he resembles the Son of God. Even the whole idea of resembling the Son of God shows he's not the Son of God. This is, I'm back in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 3 now. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. This is, this is language of similarity. He's not saying that Melchizedek actually is an eternal being. He's not saying that he is the Son of God, but he's saying the way he appears in the storyline of Genesis, there's not a clear beginning to Melchizedek's existence and priesthood, and there's not a clear end to Melchizedek's uh, existence and priesthood. The way that as we go on later to read about the Levitical priests, there is. That Aaron is installed as a high priest, and his priesthood begins, and then Aaron dies, and his priesthood ends. And Aaron's son's priesthood begins, and Aaron's son's priesthood ends. But Melchizedek is a priest who we're not told about the beginning of his priesthood, and we're not told about the end of his priesthood. And so it's as if his priesthood continues forever. Um, And we also see in Genesis chapter 14 that Abraham, as the author of Hebrews puts it, paid tithes to Melchizedek. Uh, Now, this argument at the beginning of Hebrews 7 is at first glance kind of confusing and mind-twisting because it's talking about Abraham paying tithes and, and Levi paying tithes because he was in the loins of Abraham and so on and so forth. And we wonder, what are we to make of all this? But the way that uh, the ancient Jews thought of superiority and inferiority is that fathers are superior and sons are inferior. And so the whole idea here is that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, which was a way of showing honor. So Abraham is acknowledging that Melchizedek is superior to him, that is superior to Abraham. And because Levi was one of Abraham's descendants, Abraham is greater than Levi, but Melchizedek is greater even than Abraham, which means that Melchizedek is greater than Levi. That's the line of thinking in Hebrews chapter 7. And so we begin to see that what the author of Hebrews is trying to do is unfold some of the implications here, that Melchizedek is a greater priest than all the priests who would come in the line of Levi. In contrast to them who had a short duration of priesthood, they were born, they served, and they died. Melchizedek is represented to us in the scriptures as one of whom we don't see the beginning of his priesthood and we don't see the end of his priesthood. And so it's as if he continues a priest forever. And uh, he is greater than uh, the Levitical priesthood in that He is superior to Abraham, and Abraham is superior to Levi. And so Melchizedek is superior to Levi. And then we also see that he 
uh, is not a descendant of Abraham, which means that the breadth of his priestly work blesses and benefits more than the descendants of Abraham. So, in other words, he wasn't acting as a priest merely for the children of Abraham because, obviously, he was a priest uh, to other people at that time before Abraham's children were even extant. And so he had a greater breadth of service than uh, the Levitical priest did who, who represented uh, and who worked for and served in their priesthood merely the children of Israel. So some of these, these are the kinds of things that the author of Hebrews is trying to draw out. And so that's sort of the Old Testament background. And that's, a, that's our exegetical work to begin kind of trying to wrap our minds around the thrust of the argument in the book of Hebrews. We just have to be able to have some familiarity with Genesis 14 and get an idea of the direction in which the author of Hebrews is thinking. But now what we're going to do is go to Hebrews and we're just going to touch a few ways now that the author of Hebrews points out that uh, Christ, after the order of Melchizedek, is superior to the Levitical priests. So the first thing that uh, we're going to look at this evening is uh, Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 20. Uh, Well, let's start at verse 19, actually. He says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now, in the Jewish tabernacle and later in the temple, the inner place behind the curtain is the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go and he but once a year to make atonement for the people. This was the place of of God's special presence among the people of Israel. Now, what we see here is that Jesus goes into the inner place behind the curtain. We see that in verse 19. But verse 20 says something that could never be said about any other priest in the Old Testament. None of the Levitical priests. It says that Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. You know what a forerunner is? Someone who goes there before you. Which means implicitly that you're coming after. The Levitical priests went into the Holy of Holies. Not as forerunners but as those who would go in and make atonement and come out, and no one else would go in until next year when the high priest does the same thing again. And none of the common people would go in there. None but the high priest. None of the other priests would even go in there. The high priest doesn't even go in the Holy of Holies as a forerunner of the other priests. He doesn't go in there even as a forerunner of the priestly class. He just goes in there himself. And that's it. But what this passage says is that Jesus went into the Holy of Holies as a forerunner on our behalf. Which means that Jesus is going to bring us into the Holy of Holies. And this is the whole idea of the curtain of the temple being torn in two at His crucifixion. That He gave us access into the Holy of Holies. 
You see, in the, in the tabernacle system, in the temple system, access to God was mediated through uh, the sacrificial system and through the priests that officiated it. God's special presence was localized in a particular place and only a select few had access to that place. But what this tells us is that Jesus went into the place where God's special presence is in order to bring us there also. And that's an amazing thing. That's something much better than any of the Levitical priests have ever done and could ever do. And so that's one way that the author of Hebrews tells us that Christ's priesthood is superior to the priesthood of the Levitical priests. The next thing we see as we work through this passage chronologically, we're just going to touch and highlight a few of these things just to help show the glory of Christ's priesthood. The second thing that we see is that Christ's term of service is forever. We already saw that uh, Melchizedek resembles the Son of God, that he resembles one who has no mother and father and has no beginning of days nor end of life. That's Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 3. We saw that that's not actually literally true of Melchizedek, but the scripture presents Melchizedek to us in such a way that he could be compared to the eternal Son of God in that respect. And what we see, uh, so he introduces, the author of Hebrews introduces that idea in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 3. And he expands it later on in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So we don't have to worry like Christ is a great priest for me today. Christ has been a great priest for me for the last 12 years ever since I committed my soul into His care, ever since I drew near to God through Him, Christ has been a great priest to me for the last 12 years. But will He be a great priest for me tomorrow? Will He be a great priest to me in my 40s and in my 50s and in my 60s and in my 70s? And if God should tarry and grant me this length of life into my 80s and 90s, will God, will Christ be a good, effective, high priest for me all my life through? He has been to date, but will He be in the future? The Levitical priests were prevented from continuing in office by their mortality. But Christ Jesus, we read, continues forever. And so He who has been a great priest for me shall continue to be a great priest for me. Which means, Christian, you can continue to trust your soul to this priest every single day for the rest of your life. And when you're old and gray, when you become decrepit and your body wears down, you can trust Christ, the high priest, to be just as effective on that day as He is for you today in your youth. Christian, we have a great high priest who continues forever and we don't have to worry about whether His priesthood is going to come to an end because He shall never die. He always lives to make intercession for His people. He continues forever. 
And so Christ is a better high priest than the Levitical priesthood in that respect as well. We see further in chapter 8 and verse 2 that Christ ministers in the true tent. We have such a high priest, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up. Not man. The idea here, the contrast is between that which is the substance and that which is the shadow. That which is the archetype and that which is the uh, facsimile or the, or the um, copy, as the, as the scripture says. The earthly tabernacle was a picture of the heavenly tabernacle. And the Levitical priests went in and did, as it were, demonstrations or models of how a priest ought to operate. How a priest ought to work. They bring a sacrifice to make atonement for sins and then they apply the blood of the sacrifice to the people whom they represent. What this tells us is that Christ wasn't doing a demonstration. He wasn't modeling something about priesthood. He was working effectively as a priest in the true tent. This was not a picture of something greater. Christ's work in the true tent was not a picture of something greater. The way that the Levitical priest's work was a picture of something greater. Christ's work Christ's priestly work in the true tent was the greater thing that the Levitical priests were picturing. Christ is a priest, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up. When Moses was about to erect the tent, chapter 8 and verse 5 says, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. It's as if God said, look, Moses, here is the real tent. Make a copy of that down here. Christ did not minister in the copy. He ministered in the original. And so uh, Christ's tent is, as it were, superior. It's no longer practice. It's no longer a drill. It's the real thing. We also see that Christ has obtained a better ministry than the Levitical priests because the covenant He mediates is better. This is chapter 8 and verse 6 since it is enacted on better promises. The whole idea is that uh, the first covenant wasn't sufficient to take away sins. We read later in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4 that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It was impossible actually for the Levitical priest's work to actually take away sins. That their sacrifices were types and shadows and pictures. They uh, were efficacious in, as it were, staying the temporal wrath of God. God knowing that He would eventually send the substance of which those things uh, testified and foreshadowed God stayed His wrath uh, for the sake of the ministry of these Levitical priests in the Old Covenant. There was, a, there was a temporal relief 
from God's wrath and God's judgment insofar as the Israelites faithfully carried out uh, their duties with respect to the Old Covenant. But it could never take away sin. That covenant was not sufficient to take away sin. Look back at Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? The implication here is that perfection was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood. And we see the same logic in chapter 8 and verse 7. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And so what we see is that the Levitical priests were operating within a framework, namely the Old Covenant, which was itself insufficient to take away sin. But Christ comes, and the covenant that He mediates is better because it is enacted on better promises, as we read in Hebrews chapter 8. And we read the terms of the New Covenant in Hebrews uh, chapter 8, that God will establish a new covenant not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, chapter 8 and verse 9 says, uh, which um, in Jeremiah 31 says, which they broke. But God says, I will uh, put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And it goes on and it says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. By means of this new covenant, God will actually deal with sin. By means of this priesthood of Christ in the new covenant, God will actually deal with sins. And so the covenant that He mediates is superior to the covenant in which the Levitical priests minister. And then finally, and we didn't read this part, I mean, we could have read the whole book of Hebrews. Basically, like the whole idea of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than all the... First of all, He's better than all the the prophets and all the the Old Testament revelations. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. Right? He's better than Melchizedek. He's better than Levi. He's better. He's better. He's better. This is the whole book of Hebrews. But chapter 9 and and verse 12, and this is as far ahead as we're going to reach tonight says that when Christ appeared, chapter 9 and verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The sacrifice that Christ brings is better than the sacrifice of the Levitical priests. They brought the blood of bulls and calves, uh, goats and calves, which could never take away sin. But Christ Jesus brought His own blood, which did take away sin. And so in all these ways, we're just surveying, we're just touching, really, some of these ideas that the author of Hebrews is trying to draw out. But what we're seeing here in this section is that Christ is not just one more priest in a long line of priests. It's like, well, there was 
you know, Aaron and, and his sons and their sons and their sons and, you know, all the way down the line. Okay, now the priesthood changed and it's no longer the line of Levi, it's the line of Judah and here's Jesus. And it's, it's not like he's just one more priest. It's like Jesus is the best priest. Jesus is the consummate priest. Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, which means that he is greater and better than all the Levitical priests. That he transcends the work of all the Levitical priests in so many ways. He actually brings us in to the Holy of Holies, unlike them. His service is forever, unlike them. He ministers in the true tent as opposed to the copy. He's the mediator of a better covenant. His sacrifice is better. He brings His own blood. All of these ways, Christ is the great cosmic high priest. He is the substance to which all of those Levitical priests were types and shadows. This is the line of argumentation in uh, this section of Hebrews. Wilhelmus Abrakel says, The office of high priest considered in particular, consists of two elements, sacrifice and prayer. He elaborates, for men to be saved, it was not sufficient that by Christ's suffering, death, and holiness, He merited salvation. But it is also necessary that by means of His intercession, He would apply salvation and make them actually partakers of it. Christ's death is the sacrificial aspect of His high priestly work. And Christ's present intercession is His application of the sacrifice which He offered on behalf of His people. And this is why you see these things going hand in hand in the New Testament. Romans chapter 8 and 34 holds both of these things together hand in hand. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Or 1 John chapter 1, or pardon me, chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so as the Old Testament priests would take an animal and slaughter it and apply the blood to the worshiper. So Christ Jesus dies and applies His blood to us by means of His intercession. And so what you see is that Christ's death and Christ's intercession go hand in hand. His priestly work wasn't finished when as a great high priest, He also became the Lamb of God and also became the temple, rending the curtain in two. His priestly work wasn't finished when He said it is finished on the cross. That aspect of His work was finished. But He died and He rose again and He ascended to heaven to sit at the Father's right hand where He continues His priestly work, making intercession for us. His blood 
speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so we see that Christ's death and Christ's intercession go hand in hand. John Owen says, Christ died as a priest in contrast to the Levites who died from being priests. Right? In other words, when they died, they were no longer priests. They died, when they died, they were no longer priests. When Christ died, He was doing His priestly work. Christ's death wasn't the end of His priestly work. Christ's death was part of His priestly work. And when Christ rose, He was still our priest. And at the Father's right hand, He is still our priest, interceding for us, advocating for us, pleading His blood before the throne of a holy God. And so, what we see is that, as Matthew Henry says, the Levitical priesthood and the law could not put those who came to them into the enjoyment of the good things they pointed out to them. They could only show them the way. Jesus puts us in to the perfect enjoyment of the good things that God promises in the Scripture to His people. He doesn't merely show us the way. He is the way. And consequently, He is able, as Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 says, to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Now, the last clause of Hebrews 7.25 says, since He always lives to make intercession for them. But His permanence isn't the only thing, as we've seen tonight, that distinguishes Him from Levitical priests. Think about this. Even if Levi had lived eternally, he could never save to the uttermost. You understand what I'm saying? Even if Levi lived forever, even if he always lived to make intercession, he could never save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Levi did not minister in the true tent. He ministered in a copy. Levi did not bring anyone into the Holy of Holies. Levi served in the context of an inferior covenant. Levi's sacrifice was merely animals which could never take away sin. In contrast to all of these things, Christ does indeed bring those whom He represents into the Holy of Holies. He ministers in the true tent. He serves in the context of a superior Covenant, an efficacious covenant. And Christ's sacrifice was not the blood of animals, but His own blood, which is sufficient to take away sin. And as Hebrews 7.25 says, His priesthood does not end. He always lives to make intercession for all who draw near to God through Him. So consequently, Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Now, the application should be so obvious. (laughs) We should draw near to God through Him. If you're not a believer, this is what you need to do. You need to recognize that you are a sinner. That you can't just walk willy-nilly into the presence of a holy God. As if God is just going to look the other way at your sin. That somehow you have a problem because you are 
polluted and stained with sin. You're guilty. You're deserving just condemnation and damnation before a holy God. You need someone to get rid of the guilt of your sin. You need somebody to propitiate God's wrath toward you, which means absorb God's wrath toward you on your behalf. You need a priest. As we've seen, none of the sons of Levi can do it, and you can't, as we saw earlier in the service, just go pick whoever you think might be a good priest. You can't just choose something else. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But Jesus is the perfect priest for all the reasons that we have seen here. You need to trust your soul to Christ Jesus. Trust that His blood, which was human blood, innocent human blood, shed on behalf of guilty humans is sufficient to take away your sin. That it was applied in the true tent, the heavenly tabernacle as it were, on behalf of sinners. That God uh, looks upon that blood, that sacrifice, that priestly work, and is pleased to pardon all for whom that blood was shed, all who are trusting in that blood. Uh, That Christ uh, is not going to just stop being a priest tomorrow or next month, and so you're not taking a risk in entrusting your soul to that priest. But if you trust your soul into that priest, just as He entered into the Holy of Holies, so by trusting in Him, you are brought into full access to God in and through Him. If you're not a Christian, what you've got to do is trust in Christ the priest to deal with the guilt of your sin and the penalty that your sin deserves by His sacrifice of Himself on the cross and by His present day application of the merit of that sacrifice uh, um, to you by His intercession. If you're not a Christian, that's what you need to do. If you are a Christian, take advantage of the fact that Christ is a great High Priest. Remind yourself of it. Glory in it. Revel in it. When you sin, bring your sin to God and confess it. In the name of Jesus. It means with Him as your representative. Confess it. Ask His pardon, ask His cleansing, ask His forgiveness because of the blood of Christ and know that that blood is sure to cleanse you. Trust in the merit of Christ's sacrifice for you and trust in the efficacy of His pleading for you, His intercession for you, that you will never be lost. That Christ as priest holds you fast and efficaciously pleads for you and has merited your salvation by His work on the cross. Revel in these things, glory in these things, depend on these things afresh, day by day and week by week. Draw near to God through Christ and trust that Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him.